the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged in, of course, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word, in Orlando, Florida. Uh, We get on the air because of Pete Paquette's engineering skills. And uh, Andrew Herdliska uh, has wonderful producing skills. And the end result is Rodney Gage is our first guest. He's the lead pastor of Rethink Life Church in Orlando, Florida. His book is called The Double Win. Eight questions everyone must ask to win at work and at home. Rodney, I'm so glad to hook up with you. How are you doing? How's everything in your life? Everything is doing good. Thank you so much, Pat. It's an honor to be with you today and looking forward to uh, getting to share some, some help and encouragement to folks out there and like all of us, uh, obviously, we're getting ready to go into a season of summer, and I love it because it's a great time to encourage people to reflect and restructure some things as they get ready for the fall season, which obviously is very busy for a lot of people. And um, so I think this book is timely, and the message is something we're passionate about that we think will impact a lot of people's lives. Uh, your introduction is a question, a no-win situation. Uh, explain that. What's that mean? Well, Pat, I think a lot of people feel stuck in their dilemma when it comes to their work-life demands and really trying to figure out, in many ways, you know, do I have to sacrifice one in order to achieve the other? And I think that's what puts people in a no-win situation because, they're trying to figure out, okay, how can I unravel this over here in my work or in my career? But at the same time, you know, how can I figure out how to unravel or how can I figure out how to maybe put more focus and time and energy into what's really most important, and that's my family, my relationships. And so a lot of people feel torn between the two. They feel like they have to sacrifice or maybe give up one over the other. And I don't believe it has to be that. I don't think it's an either-or I believe it can be a both and. I believe you can win at home, and I believe you can win at work. That's why we call it the double win. And I think many people, unfortunately, feel stuck because they feel the uh, stress and the demands that, you know, work and their career is calling for. At the same time, you know, their marriage and their children are all expecting those same uh, levels of of, of focused attention. And so what we want to do is we want to help people – get beyond just the typical productivity hacks of, uh, you know, all the technology and conveniences on 
you know, how to organize your calendar, I think there's some underlying issues and questions specifically that a lot of people need to take a step back and ask themselves so they can, so they can win at work and win at home. Now I want you to dive into the meat of your book. Uh, part one is called Rethink. And uh, you lead off with the motives question, what's driving your decisions? Tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it just kind of builds on the statement or the thought that I just shared there where many people who feel stuck in that dilemma, you know, it forces them to rethink, you know, why do I feel overcommitted? Why do I feel the weight of stress and maybe, you know, anxiety or confusion that, you know, one is feeling, you know, as it relates to, you know, choices and decisions that they need to maybe make or re- remake in terms of restructuring some things in their career path or poten- potentially restructuring some things so that they can allow themselves to be more accessible and available, you know, for those relationships at home. So I think there is a season where people need to stop and reflect and rethink, um, you know, what what is most important in our lives, and that leads me to the motive. You know, what is driving our decisions? You know, why do we feel, you know, overworked? Why do we feel overcommitted? Why do we feel the tension and the stress that exists between that choice between work and home? And I think it it really is a is a matter, you know, of a lot of people understanding what those driving motivations are. You know, is it is it for approval? Is it to climb the corporate ladder? Is it to make more money? You know, do we feel inadequate, you know, in certain things? So I think it's important that people really evaluate that. And that's a, that's a hard question for many people to dive into, but I think it's foundational because it helps expose some of the driving forces there behind our decisions. Rodney Gage is our guest. He's here in Orlando, and we're talking about his book, The Double Win. Uh, the beliefs question, who or what makes you happy? Uh, tell us more about that. <laughs> well, we all uh, think that, you know, busy is better, right? But I have found that better is simply better. And I think that there is a myth. There is this dangling carrot out there, this elusive chase that many people find themselves, you know, trying to pursue different things, thinking that in the end it's going to bring more joy, fulfillment, happiness, when in reality, a lot of these things only compound what they're already feeling. A lot of times, you know, the greater level of success comes the greater level of responsibility. The weight of that achievement, you know, takes on more things. And so at the end of the day, you know, it's the when and then thinking that a lot of people struggle with. It's, you know, when I get to a certain point, then I'll be happier. Then things will get better. And that only, again, brings more disappointment or frustration. So at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves some of these hard questions of what is it in our heart that we truly believe is going to make us happy? And of course, as a follower of Christ, uh, one who strongly believes in, in you know, faith and the importance of putting faith at the center of your life, I believe a lot of people, unfortunately, are looking to people, they're looking for circumstances, they're looking for wealth. They're looking for success in order to make them happy. When, when in reality, sometimes they're looking to the wrong people or the wrong places to fill a void or to meet a need that only God can meet in their life. And only God truly, at the end of the day, 
can truly bring joy in our lives when we find contentment in Him. And so that's something that a lot of people, I think, in many ways need to think about the role that God has in their workplace and the role that God has, obviously, in their home and in their relationships, because that in and of itself is the source of our true happiness and fulfillment. Now, let's get to the next topic, the dream question. What does your future look like? Yeah. You know, if you ask a 21, 23, (laughs) 25-year-old who's fresh out of college or, you know, maybe just starting in their career, uh, maybe starting to look in uh, in the area of their relationships, especially if they're just getting married, you know, there's a blank canvas, and what I have found is a lot of people have never really stopped to think about what is the ideal? You know, what is the dream? What's the ultimate pursuit? And I think a lot of couples really need to stop and think about the end in mind. So where, do, where do we see ourselves five years, 10 years, or 25 years down the road? What ultimately do we want to become? Who do we want to become along the way? And that's a part of, you know, some of the following questions that the book unveils, but it helps put a framework and helps put a picture in front of a couple or an individual when they start thinking about their career path, when they start thinking about, you know, their future when it comes to their marriage, their family relationships, who and what do they ultimately want to become? And the bigger question is, is how are they going to get there? What choices along the way do they need to make in order to allow them to ensure that that dream or that destiny that they have in their hearts actually becomes a reality? Now it's time to uh, get to part two. Uh, You call it refocus. And you lead off with uh, this, the values question. What do you want to be known for? Yeah, and that builds on the last one we just talked about there because when you think about what we want to be known for, you know, what, if, I like to put it this way, if, um, if someone were to, and I hate to go morbid on us here, <laughs> but if, if somebody were to be at our, if they were to show up at our funeral, they were to stand at our graveside, you know, what, what, is, what do we want to be known for? You know, what, what do we want people to say about our lives, the choices that we made, you know, how we lived? What kind of, you know, reputation is synonymous with those values or those beliefs that that are most important to our lives? And I think this is something, once again, a lot of people never really stop and think about, but it is a huge, huge driving force in our lives in a healthy, positive way when we can begin to build our lives, build our career, build our family relationships around the, what I call the non-negotiables. And these non-negotiables build into the priorities that ultimately are driven from the values that are most important to our personal lives, our marriage, as well as our career path and the choices that we make along the way. So every question that I help people through this book evaluate and take some time to process really helps begin to reveal some things they've never really stopped to think about and really, I think, consider the weight of just how important these decisions truly are, which leads us to that priorities question. 
now, uh, and our guest is Rodney Gage, right here in Orlando, lead pastor of Rethink Life Church. Let's talk about the priorities question, Rodney. What's really important to you? Good question, right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's important to us. You know, I like to say it this way, a good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. And I think what happens is that there is a lot of young young couples, young families who um, will say certain things are important, right? We all like to quickly articulate to people when asked the question, what's important to you? So we will rattle off certain values that we feel like are important. But the bigger question is, is there a gap between what we say is important to us and what our commitments actually reveal? Now, I have found that there's usually a large gap there. So we can say certain things are important, but what does our schedule look like during the week? How, you know, how are we spending our time and how are we spending our money? Because those things in and of themselves will reveal what's really important to us. And so I think it comes back down to, once again, really identifying those non-negotiables of what our true values are. And then we fight to protect those values by building our priorities around those things that truly reflect what's most important. It's kind of like the old word picture of putting the big rocks in the jar first before you pour all the, you know, the pebbles in the sand. You know, if you wait until you fill up the jar with pebbles and sand, there's no room left to put the big rocks in that often reveal what's most important. So I think it comes down to people just, once again, restructuring some things in their lives when it comes to work and when it comes to home so that at the end of the day, their lives actually reveal because of the way they're living and the choices they make along the way, it all reflects back to what's really most important in their lives. Rodney Gage is our guest, the lead pastor of Rethink Life Church in Orlando. Rodney, uh, tell us about your church. We are located in a brand-new, rapidly growing community called Lake Nona. It's in the southeast quadrant of uh, Orlando, just south of the airport. And uh, we actually meet at a high school called Lake Nona High School. We have service, uh, service times at uh, 1030, and uh, people can check us out at RethinkLife.com. And uh, our heart is to reach the community, and obviously uh, there's a, a growing number of folks that are moving here from all over the country and around the world. And uh, we feel like that God has placed us here for such a time as this to reach people and to impact people, and especially young families and people who are uh, living out exactly what we're talking about here today. Uh, and that's our heart, is to, um, is to help people live life on purpose in that way. Pastor Rodney Gage is our guest. We have another segment with Rodney. Uh, we're talking about his book, The Double Win, Eight Questions Everyone Must Ask to Win at Work and at Home. And when we return, uh, Rodney's going to address uh, this topic, the expectations question. Who does what by when? Boy, oh boy, I can't wait to hear this. Uh, Rodney Cage is our guest. The book is The Double Win, Eight Questions Everyone Must Ask to Win at Work and at Home. 
I'm Pat Williams. This is the Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. My guest is Rodney Gage, a pastor here in Orlando. Uh, His book is called The Double Win, and Rodney has advertised the expectations question, who does what by when? What's all that mean? (laughs) Well, this is a a huge part of the book, and one that is, as you can imagine, is is a major stress point and a point of contention for a lot of, uh, especially couples when it comes to their marriage relationships and parenting, you know, because both husband and wife are in the workplace. So when you have couples who are, you know, obviously trying to divvy up and share the different roles and responsibilities uh, with work, you know, all the extracurriculars, uh, you know, trying to get from point A to point B for soccer practice or dance, you know, um, you know, piano lessons or, you know, whatever the extracurricular might be, that in and of itself creates a lot of dynamics that many young couples, young families struggle with, and especially as it relates to all of these, you know, preceding questions we've been talking about, because it, it really does reflect, you know, what is it that we value, where are these priorities, and then ultimately when couples or individuals begin to restructure their lives, then they, then they can really begin to take some even deeper looks as it relates to who's better qualified. You know, for example, you know, who's better qualified and who's best? Where's the strength in the home when it comes to who's best for managing, you know, the checkbook and the finances? Who's best when it comes to, uh, you know, helping the kids with the homework or staying on task with certain responsibilities or chores around the house? You know, what are the expectations between the husband and the wife when it comes to, you know, one who's maybe choosing to stay at home while the other one is working? You know, there's a lot of big questions that, you know, a lot of young couples, unfortunately, have never really stopped to think about. But these are important questions when it comes to understanding the unique roles, the different personalities, the different giftings, the strengths that two individuals bring into a marriage, and how can they complement each other, support each other, come alongside each other to help ensure that all of these things, when it comes to the priorities and their values, that dream that we talked about at the very beginning, all of these expectations actually become a reality because of how we've built on a foundation that we have agreed to establish in our lives and in our home. So these are important things that um, I think help bring some constructive conversations into every family when it comes to deciding who does what by when, when it comes to those roles that each of, each of us play. Rodney Gage is with us. We're talking about his book, The Double Win, Eight Questions Everyone Must Ask to Win at Work and at Home. Well, here's question number seven, Rodney. It's the success question. How do you define the win? Question mark. Yeah, and that's important because you know it's it's if you don't know what you're shooting for, it's kind of like trying to hit two targets with one arrow. 
And unfortunately, a lot of individuals are aiming at so many different things. But what is the true win? You know, what does a win look like? And I think so often we associate a win with getting a pay raise or a bump in, you know, our income or maybe a step up in a career opportunity. And those can be a part of wins that we celebrate. But are those the true measurable wins that's going to bring health into our relationships, into our marriage, into ultimately who we are trying to become along the way? Because of all of those you know, pursuits when it comes to our career, you know, material things, money, accolades, accomplishments, if all of those things overshadow what we often say is most important, then are we truly winning? And I see too many people, unfortunately, confuse activity with accomplishment. You know, they're busy, but at the same time, are they making a difference? You know, are they making an impact with their life? And are they really living fulfilled? Do they feel like they're actually living out a greater purpose in their life? And that is true success when it comes to helping people understand that my worth is not necessarily wrapped up in my work. My worth and my true sense of value of who I am as a person, who we are as a couple, who we are as a family, is rooted on these beliefs when it comes to who God says we are and ultimately how we're living out His principles and His values in every area of our lives. To me, that's how we ultimately define the win. Rodney, we're at number eight. It's the legacy question. How will you influence the next generation? Yeah, and I love this particular question, and we wanted to intentionally wrap up the book with this, because I think the mindset, once again, because of all the things we've been talking about so far, can often lead many people with that driving motivation to have all of these things in life that often are associated by our culture's definition of success. But at the end of the day, we want to leave our kids with far more than just memories what we want to do is we want to leave them a legacy, and we want to make a mark on their lives. Generationally, we want to see the influence of one generation influencing the next. We want to see those same values and those same principles passed down from one generation to the next. And so we can't become who we need to be by remaining who we are. Sometimes we need to rethink and re visit some of these things we've been talking about and then re-engage, you know, this, this area of our life so that we can restructure some things that's going to allow us to pass on, you know, some values and some eternal things that are going to impact our children and our children's children for generations to come. So this is the legacy that we all have an opportunity to write or rewrite, even as grandparents, you know, those who are uh, having the opportunity to be the voice of influence and wisdom to their to their grandchildren or their grandchildren, great grandchildren. So these are all legacy milestones that we can begin to build into our family, into our marriage, and ultimately into the next generation. Tell me this, Rodney, uh, what do you want people to take from your book and our discussion? 
the greatest takeaway that I want to see people benefit from is they don't have to sacrifice their most important relationships in order to pursue their career ambitions. They don't have to pick either or. I believe they can achieve both and. I believe they can live out the double win in their life if they learn to ask these important questions, restructure some things, revisit their values and their priorities, and ultimately begin building their dreams so they can leave that legacy that they'll be proud of knowing they finished the race, they ran their race, and they finished the race, and they ultimately achieved the winning prize. And that is to know they've made an eternal impact on the places of influence, both at home and at work, where they'll spend the majority of their lives. Rodney, what's next on your checklist here? You got another book project in in the works? (laughs) Yes, this is my eighth book, and uh, we definitely have some uh, new resources that we're, we're in the process of developing. One of the things I'm super excited about, Pat, is Everything that we've been talking about so far is actually also a part of a mentoring program that my wife and I do called the Double Win Club. In fact, people can get a free copy of the book uh, when they sign up for our Double Win Club. And it's a, uh, it's a mentoring opportunity to help strengthen marriages, to help come alongside parents and help encourage them and equip them to be strong, both in their marriage relationships and their family relationships with their kids, and we call it the Double Win Club. And so they can get a free copy of the book uh, when they enter into a 30-day free trial. Uh, All they have to do is pay for the shipping and handling, and we'll send it directly to them. But it's it's called the Double Win Club. And again, it is an annual mentoring program uh, where they get all kinds of tools and resources, plus a monthly one-hour live mentoring call with my wife and I, and we walk through in great detail things that they can do to help win both at home and at work and ultimately in life. And so, again, that's the doublewinclub.com, and there's some resources and tools there, and we also have a website called thewinningfamily.com. Thewinningfamily.com is a place that they can go, once again, to learn more about how they can grow and develop their most important relationships. Rodney Gage has been our guest, author of The Double Win, lead pastor of Rethink Life Church in the Lake Nona area of Orlando. We've got more after this. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, and this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Our guest in that uh, last segment was Rodney Gage, lead pastor of Rethink Life Church in Orlando. We talked about his book, The Double Win. Well, we go from Orlando out to beautiful Oregon. We found Steve Miller there, author of Four Shadows. 12 mega clues that Jesus' return is nearer than ever. Steve, it's wonderful to have you uh, here in Orlando. I hope things are well with you. They are. Thank you very much for having me. Steve, tell me the background of this book. Why was it important for you to write it? A big part of it is just looking at what's going on in the world around us today. Uh, 
this is true for so many people. There are a lot of people who feel like there is so much going on that lines up with what Scripture says about what will happen near the end times, what will happen before Christ returns. In fact, if as we look at what Jesus himself said, what happened in our world before his return, and as we look around us, we see a lot of things matching up and lining up. And so there are a lot of people who are asking questions. They're saying, are we nearing the end? And they're asking questions about what the Bible teaches about the end times, and they want to know answers. And so that was a big part of wanting to write this book and be able to answer those questions. Uh, part one of your book, Israel's Rebirth, The Ultimate Sign of the End Times, God's Promise to Regather Israel, a Miraculous Event, and God's Promise to Prosper Israel, a Growing World Power. Uh, I want to hear all about this. I'm fascinated with that topic. Yes, it is fascinating, because all through Scripture, God repeatedly promised His people that He would bring them back into their own land after they'd been scattered. Uh, as we look at what happened in the Bible, God warned His people that if you disobey me, I will scatter you across the earth. And that's what happened. When Christ came, uh, He was rejected, and He was crucified. And so what ended up happening was Judge McCain a number of years later, in AD 70, uh, Rome sent its armies down to Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and scattered the Jewish people all across the world. And they've been scattered since. And so we look at Scripture, and there were many places where God said, I'm going to bring my people back into their land. But nearly 2,000 years went by before that happened, so a lot of people began to wonder, is this ever going to happen? Well, it did, back in 1948. Israel became a nation again. And what's so crucial about that is that as we look at end times Bible prophecies, as we look at everything that has to happen during the tribulation year and before Christ's return, it involves Israel. There has to be a nation of Israel in place. So the fact that Israel is a nation now means that there is a stage on which the end times can be played out. Now, let's uh, dive into the meat of your book. Part two, foreshadows from the future, 12 mega clues that point to the end times. And foreshadow number one, Steve, the rise of, uh, of global, uh, globalism. What does that mean? Globalism is a mindset. Globalism says that we are all citizens of one world. And there are people who are called globalists who say their their whole view of what's going on in this world today is the problems that we face, we face together. Um, And global problems require global solutions. And the implication of that is if they require global solutions, then there needs to be some kind of a global governing body that is able to enforce those solutions. I want to uh, move on to the next topic, Steve. Foreshadow number two, the trends toward a one-world government. Uh, what's that all about? Well, in Revelation thirteen seven, the Bible tells us that there is coming a day when there will be a one-world ruler, and that one-world ruler will have authority over every tribe, nation, language, and people. And what we wonder is, as we look at a world today, we have 200 different countries, we have all these different political factions, people think differently, people have different approaches to life, 
different governments have different ways of doing things. How are we going to get from here to that one world government? And what I lay out in this chapter is whether or not we're globalists, whether or not we see the world as all needing to be having a global government, there are forces in play today that are pushing us in that direction. And some of those forces are a greater dependence on governments today. Society uh, is placing more and more authority in government hands for how education be handled, uh, how energy policies should be handled, how uh, health crises should be handled. Um, governments now work more closely together than ever before, um, not just through the United Nations, but through other organizations like the G20, where they try to create policies that don't just affect one nation, but all of them. Uh, another trend is uh, modern technology is interlinking us, is networking us. Um, the fact that modern technology networks us the way it does makes us, us tend to view ourselves more as a stateless people. There is a trend that I call all-or-nothing politics, where governments are wanting their people to uh, walk in line with one another, they don't want people to hold to their own opinions, hold their own views, but rather they want all people to hold to an approved narrative that is upheld by the government. Um, there's the silencing of freedom of speech. Uh, there's pressure for the disinformation boards to decide what's true and what's not true. All of these are forces that are pushing us into a mold that says we should all think the same, we should all work the same, and that's what's pushing us in the direction of a one-world government someday. Steve, let's uh, dive into the next uh, foreshadow. It's number three, the struggle to build a united European empire. Uh, what's going on? In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gave a prophecy that laid out the sweep of all of human history from that point to the end. And at the time he gave the prophecy, King Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Babylon. Babylon was at its height. He was the most powerful kingdom in the world. And in that vision, Daniel lays out, and as we look back through history today, we can see verified. He looked at the Babylonian kingdom, the Middle Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. Now, the Roman kingdom, he described uh, as the legs of iron, of a statue. There's a statue where Babylon is the head of gold, Medo-Persia is the chest of silver, uh, Greece is the thighs of bronze, Rome is the legs of iron. As we know through history, Rome became split into an Eastern Empire and a Western Empire, which lines up with what the statue says about Rome having two legs. Now, what's interesting is the very last empire that's described in this vision that Daniel has. He describes it as feet and toes of iron and clay. The iron is a visible indicator that, okay, there is some remnant of the Roman Empire here. Uh, we remember that the ancient Roman Empire was represented by iron. The iron and the feet and toes shows that we're talking about remnants of that territory. And the clay is an attempt to patch remnants of that territory together. And what resembles that today is what's going on in the European Union. The European Union is an attempt to bring together many of the territories of the former Roman Empire to patch them together. 
But as we know, clay and iron don't mix. And so we have governments in Europe who are attempting to work together, but they're struggling because there are so many uh, things working against those people working together. They have uh, such diverse circumstances and situations for the people there. They have geographical differences, economic differences. Um, there's immigration, refugees, all kinds of things going on. And uh, But what we see today, this uh, European Union, Scripture tells us that the final world empire will be destroyed when Christ returns to earth, and it is this feet and toes of clay which lines up with the European Union. That tells us that the European Union will have some way, shape, or form an involvement in being the final empire of the world. Now, Steve, it's time to move on to foreshadow number four. Uh, this is the spread of all the technology and surveillance, all invasive. What's that all about? In that chapter, I talk about how it's going to be important for the Antichrist, the one world ruler someday, to be able to keep everyone in the world in line, to be able to hold his authority over all of them. And surveillance technology will be a very powerful way of doing that. In that chapter, I talk about how in China, surveillance technology is what enables the Chinese Communist Party to keep people in line and to make sure that they conform to the party's wishes. And it is this kind of technology that the Antichrist is going to need to have in place to be able to control the whole world. That's what that chapter is about. All right, let's go on. Let's continue. Uh, foreshadow number five, the progression to a one-world economy. Uh, explain all that to us, Steve. As we know right now, we have a lot of different economies all across the world. Uh, the challenge is that we are becoming a more global people. We are becoming more networked. Countries are trading with one another. And governments are finding that to have different, uh, different uh, like dollars, um, euros, uh, different financial systems, different currencies, competing currencies, becomes an impediment. As well, um, governments want to work toward digital currencies, too. They want to uh, take advantage of systems that would allow us to be able to make transactions with one another more quickly, more effortlessly, and more safely. We deal with, uh, with cash, with credit cards. You can have all kinds of uh, theft and fraud. Uh, problems that governments have had to deal with and businesses have had to deal with. And governments, what they want to do is they want to create a central bank digital currency so that all banks uh, would be centrally uh, working together in a way that they can oversee all financial transactions. Uh, 90% of the banks in the world right now are working on creating digital currencies. China already has a digital currency in place. Eight other countries already have digital currencies in place. The United States is looking at it now. But with digital currencies, it will be possible to eventually end up with the one-world economy. My guest is Steve Miller. He's in Oregon. Uh, we're talking about his book, Foreshadows, 12 Mega Clues that Jesus' return is nearer than ever. Uh, here is foreshadow number six. 
uh, the descent uh, into uh, moral and spiritual uh, corruption. Uh, explain that, Steve. When Jesus taught about the end times, he made a very interesting statement. He said that before I come back, it will be as it was in the days of Noah. If we go back in the book of Genesis, and we see what the world was like in the days of Noah, Genesis chapter 6 tells us that man's thoughts and intents were always evil continually. What it tells us is that in the days of Noah, uh, moral bankruptcy was absolute. Man had reached rock bottom. God looked at what was happening on the earth, and he decided, I am going to send a flood, and I am going to destroy it. So that tells us what the world was like back in the days of Noah. Man could not possibly get any worse. And as we look at what is happening around us morally today, we see the same thing. Morality is declining. Evil is spreading. In Isaiah 520, it talks about those who call evil good and call good evil. And we are living in that day right now. We're living in a day where... People look at what's good and they call it evil, and they look at evil and they call it good. And one example of that is abortion. Abortion kills a life. And yet there are people who say we should celebrate abortion, and there is a website online called Shout Out Your Abortion, and there's been a book that's been published saying that abortion should be celebrated as much as giving birth. And so this just shows that from a moral standpoint, we live in a world that can't even recognize the difference between good and evil anymore. Evil is viewed as good. And so we are approaching that day when it is like as the days of Noah. My guest from Oregon, Steve Miller, we're talking about his book, Foreshadows. We've got another segment with Steve. Stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. My guest is Steve Miller. He's in Oregon. We're talking about his book, The Foreshadows, 12 mega clues that Jesus' return is nearer than ever. Steve, here is um, uh, foreshadow number seven, uh, the proliferation of deception. Explain that to us. Again, when Christ taught in the end times, he said that watch out for people who say, I am Christ, or Christ is here, or Christ is there. And in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two and Second Timothy chapter three, the Apostle Paul talks about the proliferation of deception. How toward the end time there will be more and more deception. So when Christ was talking about people who say here is the Christ or there is the Christ, he was talking about deception. And what that means is that as we approach the last days, deception is going to increase. What makes deception so powerful? is that those who are being deceived don't realize they're being deceived. And this goes back to, uh, in Scripture, it talks about Satan being an angel of light. He makes himself look good. And what Satan does, 
is he makes falsehood and lies look good and appear to be true. And so what we see happening in the world today is that Bible truths are being diminished, they're being watered down. Many in the church are saying, how can we be more appealing to people in the world? And basically what we're asking is, how can we make the world like us more? When the question really should be, how can we make the world be drawn to God? And so what's happening is culture is actually influencing the church more than the church is influencing culture. And by allowing that, we allow ourselves to be deceived, and we allow ourselves to water down the truth, and we end up only deceiving ourselves and causing other people to be falling into deception as well. Now, Steve, tell us about uh, foreshadow number eight, uh, the assault on truth. In that chapter, I talk about how words are being redefined to change their meaning. Uh, a good starting example is the word tolerant. It used to be that we understood tolerant to mean two people could disagree with one another, legitimately so, and that was fine. We could agree to disagree. But now the word tolerant has been changed to mean if you are really tolerant, then you will completely accept people for what they say about themselves for their values, for what they believe. In other words, tolerance has gone from, I'm willing to let you hold to your views and you respect my view, to you respect my views or else. You have to agree with me or else. And if you aren't tolerant of me, then you're a hater. And so just the mere fact that we've redefined the word tolerance now suddenly means someone who doesn't agree with you is someone who hates you, that in turn redefines the word hate. And there's a snowball effect to where as we change the meanings of words, there's an assault on truth. Another one of the assaults on truth is cancel culture, where people who hold to a specific worldview or hold to a specific opinion are canceled for holding that opinion. Steve, I want you to tell me about foreshadow number nine. The increase of Christian persecution. Yes. Uh, typically, when we talk about Christian persecution, we think about people in places like North Korea or India or China, where Christianity is actually outlawed or discouraged. The distribution of Bibles is prohibited. Uh, countries like Iran, where Christians are put into jail. And those that's the typical clear understanding of what definition uh, of what persecution is. But persecution actually has its starting point. And in that chapter, I talk about the three stages of persecution. It begins with marginalization, which we see a lot of happening today in Canada, the United States, Australia, some of the freer countries of the world, where Christians are being ostracized, they're being marginalized, they're being isolated, they're being intimidated. You're being told, <laughs> don't be so vocal about your faith, or don't show your faith so much. And that's marginalization, where you push Christians out to the outer fringes of society. The next stage is demonization, where Christians are vilified or condemned for what they hold to and believe. And we're seeing that happen more and more today, too, where there is a 
longer social or cultural criticism of Christians for what they believe, and they're criticized for that. Now, think of this in terms of hate speech. Uh, there are laws in Europe where if you offend someone religiously, you can be in prison. And that trend is coming toward America, too, where if Christians say certain things and it's interpreted as hate speech, if hate speech is strong enough to get you put into prison, then we're looking at the point at which Christianity goes from not just being demonized but criminalized to where what we believe and what we say is actually enough to get us put in jail, and that would be uh, persecution, too. Steve, tell us about uh, foreshadow number 10, the explosion of hostilities toward Israel and the Jewish people. One of the things that people commonly associate with the Holocaust is the same, never again. We look at the horrors of what happened, the persecution that the Jewish people uh, had against them all across Europe, and how the uh, Nazi government uh, exterminated some six million Jews all across Europe and uh, other places. And we think we can't allow that to happen again. But we do uh, see evidence of a resurgence of a rise in anti-Semitism around the world, not just from the usual expected places like many of the Arab nations in the Middle East, which have always hated Israel, and which from the day that Israel became a nation said, we're going to push you into the sea. And when Israel became a nation, five Arab armies immediately came against it within 24 hours, wanting to destroy the nation. And Israel has since been in a very precarious situation there in the Middle East, having to defend itself. But anti-Semitism all across the world, there are polls that show that Jewish people no longer feel safe in the places where they live. And there has been research that's been done that says that 84% of anti-Jewish social media posts are not removed even after the social media companies have been notified of those posts. And those who have survived the Holocaust, former Holocaust survivors, they look at what's going on in the world today and they're saying, we're beginning to see it come back. It's happening in small steps, but it's happening. And this, of course, does fit in with what the Bible says we should expect to happen at the end times. Steve, tell us about uh, foreshadow number 11, the preparation for a new temple in Jerusalem. This, I think, is one of the most exciting aspects of the book. This is the one area where a lot of people have questions because it's such a vivid demonstration that God is active in our midst right now, preparing the world for the end times. Scripture tells us that during the tribulation, the Antichrist will enter the temple on the Temple Mount and desecrate it. Well, as we know, there is no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem right now. On the Temple Mount instead, it's the Dome of the Rock, and the Temple Mount is considered the third holiest uh, location in uh, Islamic uh, religion uh, for Islamic believers. And uh, so we think, well, how can a temple ever possibly be there? <laughs> the Temple Mount is currently in Muslim hands. And we know what the animosity is between the Muslims and the Jewish people. We know that the situation there is very sensitive. But Scripture tells us that there will be a temple there. And 
there is an organization right now that has created all the implements for the temple. They are training priests for the temple. Architectural plans have already been drawn up for it. All that needed to be built, and all that remains to see how God makes that happen. My guest has been Steve Miller. The book, well, it's fascinating, Foreshadows, 12 Mega Clues that Jesus' Return is Nearer Than Ever. Now, we've got to wrap up, but first, uh, these messages will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Rodney Gage, our guest in that first segment, uh, lead pastor of the Rethink Life Church here in Orlando. We talked about his book, The Double Win, Eight Questions Everyone Must Ask to Win at Work and at Home. And then we just finished with Steve Miller from his home in Oregon. And we talked about his book, Foreshadows, 12 Mega Clues that Jesus' Return is Nearer Than Ever. Uh, I've got a new book out. It's called Every Day is Game Day. It's a 365-page devotional. I did it with my friend Mark Atterbury. Uh, Each devotion starts with a sports story or anecdote. And then leads into the devotional part. Uh, I think you'll get some value from the book. Uh, Amazon, a great way to order books from our guests. And uh, this one uh, is up there as well. Every day is game day. Well, folks, have a wonderful week ahead. We'll see you next weekend for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. See you next weekend. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.